Welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Philip Richmond, who is a medical director at Country Oaks Animal Hospital. He's a speaker, uh, veterinary and workplace well-being advocate, positive psychology consultant, and is the founder of Flourishing Phoenix, a veterinary well-being and engagement consulting company. He's the chair of the FVMA, so Florida Veterinary Medical Association Professional Wellness and Well-Being Committee. He's a member of the National Workplace Suicide Prevention and Postvention Committee. He's a key opinion leader in the veterinary well-being for BI Animal Health, has also served on the board of directors for the Florida Medical Professionals Group, an organization that supports medical professionals in recovery in the state. Last but not least, recently was just awarded the Florida Veterinary Medical Association Veterinarian of the Year. Dr. Richmond, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Isaiah. So I apologize for the number of hats. It's a belabored intro, but thank you. It's very, really a genuine pleasure to be with you after the talks we've had. I'm honored. I appreciate it. And I think part of the reason why that intro is great is because it kind of spells a lot of different things where if I'm an individual, I hear that I'm like, wow, you've accomplished so much, which you have, right? Like that's a testament to a lot of work that you've done. But one thing that struck me initially why I reached out was just some of the humbleness and some of the things that you shared and are very public with that I really appreciated. And I think that's kind of a, a lot of the direction of where we'll go today. But one key area when we chatted first was just it's such an interesting time in veterinary medicine. And you hear about the demand for veterinarians right now is through the roof. Like we just can't find help. We can't find help. But that demand also has a lot of pressures with it because those that are in clinic and in practice are getting stretched thinner and thinner. What are your thoughts on just kind of the crossroads of where veterinary medicine is today? Oh, we could spend hours on that. It is a very interesting time. I'm heartened that I think we have an opportunity to find some sustainability, ironically, with what we're all going through, that hopefully this can move some change, especially with our paraprofessional staff. That's been something I think we've all seen over the years is just being able to have someone who can basically afford housing and clothing and all the things and be able to be a veterinary technician and somebody that we all depend on. With veterinarians too, the, you know, as far as the crossroads, I think we're just going to be forced to make some changes and change is hard, but we're due as a profession to shed some light on some things. And I think some of the things we may talk about, especially with the importance of well-being in the workplace and how that is going to be really an essential benefit, if you will, to a workplace, um, not just talking wages, but that's a critical aspect and positive leadership. So there's some uncertainty, some VUCA, if the volatility and uncertainty there, but I think that's going to push forward. We're going to find some solutions. And so I'm excited and a little freaked out like the rest of us where what direction we're going to go in. But I have faith in our profession. Perfect. Thinking through, again, like I said from the top, the LinkedIn post of you winning FVMA Veterinary of the Year hit me because it was really raw and vulnerable. And I think that takes a lot of courage to do that because, again, everyone, especially with social media, it's always, hey, look at me, look at all these things I accomplished. And it can be a humble brags, right? Like people are kind of just showing. And sometimes I feel like social media does that where you see the best 10, 15% of someone's life where you still were saying, hey, I've achieved this thing and it's really great. But it's also thanking a lot of people along the way that have helped support you. I think that's fantastic. And so first, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's really what led to our initial conversation. But then second, and really, I think where my question is, is your journey hasn't been easy. And you shared that in that post. And I've talked very little about 
substance abuse on the show. It came up in one conversation with one particular person talking a little bit about well-being, but we didn't really go into it in as much depth as I think we will and what you have. But you've lived it. You've come out the other side, a better man, father, husband, and veterinarian, and you've shared that with me. And again, I appreciate that. But can you kind of share the story and what you're willing to? And I think that'll help set the foundation for some of the other stuff that you're doing now. And also, it's just such an important topic. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for bringing this to light because it's one of those things. Let me first start by saying that WHO had a survey, took surveys from different countries and found that the number one most stigmatized disease in the world was illicit drug use or substance use disorder. Number two was HIV AIDS. And so as an individual who grew up, I grew up in the 80s and just seeing how that disease just traumatized people and just seeing some of the things that happened, knowing that alcohol and, and alcoholism, by the way, was number four on average. The stigmatization of the disease, and it is a disease, is really the challenge that we run into. And so where I'm coming from is just trying to decrease some of that stigma because that's what keeps most of us sick for as long as we are. And the other thing that I'd like to say about that before we kind of get into my personal journey, and, and it is a little bit of my personal journey, but when we're children, so there's a assessment that's called the adverse childhood experiences. There are 10 of these things listed. Some of those things have to do with, do you have a parent that had a mental illness and or alcoholism, you know, or your parents divorced? Did you ever go through verbal abuse, physical abuse? those types of things, not to get too far down the rabbit hole, but on those 10 adverse childhood experiences, if someone has four or more of those, they're seven to 10 times more likely to have a use disorder before that child has any say, because we still, unfortunately, as a society kind of frame this as, a, as an issue of willpower or lack of will or lack of stick-to-itiveness, that if you just wanted to, you'd be able to quit. So one aspect of that is that before we have any say, you know, our, our maximum innocence, if you will, we're already seven times more likely to have that. So those are two things that I just want to bring up because it's important to enlighten the condition because most of us, we see what we see in the media or we know somebody who has the condition and we just, it's hard to get over that stigma. As I say that, that was my journey from probably about the time I was 14 until the time that I got into recovery, where alcohol and substances were really the only way that I could deal with emotions, anxiety, depression, trying to self-treat and the things that were wrong with me. And those things, they worked for a little while until they didn't. And that's the challenge. For me, I was like, well, I can't have a problem because I'm still doing these things at a high level. And that's the fallacy of just about every medical professional that I know in recovery is we think that intelligence or cognitive ability or something like that is going to keep us from this issue. And it doesn't. In fact, sometimes it makes it worse. Why do we see, and it goes into human health as well, but just doctors in general, there's a lot of, and I'm saying a lot of research, like I've seen it secondhand. I don't have anything to cite. I don't have anything in front of me, but to your knowledge and understanding and what you've done as far as digging into this more, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't doctors in general at such a higher propensity to have these type of issues compared to maybe other professionals? Or am I just misquoting something? Most of the data that we have is on physicians. 
but we'll say in general, I think most addictionologists or specialists in addiction medicine would agree that 12 to 15% of medical professionals at some point in their career are going to have a use disorder. Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to require inpatient treatment, but it means that our use is a, gone past, you know, uh, inappropriate coping mechanism as far as our intake. Now, to answer your question is that part of that has to do with who we select for. And I think just about any professional school, we select for a perfectionist personality. That perfectionism also leads to an inability to handle failure and some of the things too that as we grow up with. And so we tend to select for certain personality types and we aren't given, oftentimes I should say, we aren't given the skills of resiliency to be able to address some of the things that we encounter as we get out. So it's not that medical school or veterinary school or the profession itself causes it, but we've selected for a certain type of person and then that moves forward. What's also interesting, just data dump here, is that Elizabeth Strand, which is a fantastic human being, uh, she runs the veterinary social work department, uh, pretty much founded, I think, at University of Tennessee, and Jen Brandt from the AVMA. A couple of years ago, they put out a study on ACEs, so those adverse childhood experiences in veterinary students. Their thought was, is that potentially that might be playing a part with the suicide issue in veterinary medicine. Now, what was interesting is what they found is that, and just kind of giving a breakdown of that, is that veterinary students in that cohort, in the population they looked at, had ACEs about the same as the general population. Now, what's interesting, if we look at a big meta study from Kaiser, is that the ACEs study, about 12.5% of people in this big study from Kaiser and the CDC had four or more ACEs. And remember, we have four or more of those adverse childhood experiences. We're seven to 10 times more likely to have these. So you take potentially that population, put them into medical school, and then with the perfectionist mentality and all of this, and then potentially access or ability to treat ourselves because of the stigma of mental health in, in the medical professions. That's what ends up sometimes being the end result. I appreciate that. And kind of going back to your story, so you kind of outlined 14 was kind of where things started through treatment. I know when we chatted a little bit, it was more around kind of once you got into vet school and maybe once you got out as a professional, started to maybe realize it more. But I guess, can you talk a little bit about when you realized, hey, I am having an issue. Maybe this isn't something that I'm just, this is something I deal with. It's just part of me versus, okay, maybe I do need to seek to get a little bit more help here. And it's a great question. What I'll, what I'll have to tell you is that most of what I learned when I had an issue was after I got into recovery. Because when I was in the middle of it, the survival skills, if you will, of rationalization, minimization were very strong. So I would say, well, I, I don't have a problem because I'm doing X. Or I had this idea that, well, I'm not this guy in an overcoat under a bridge drinking out of a paper bag. So clearly I don't have a problem. What would happen is some of the consequences of that behavior would happen and they would increase like with just relationships or other types of things that would happen, but I wouldn't see it. I would have a way to explain it away, why it happened. And what's very interesting too is in the Journal of the American Medical Association, we're saying that's one of the big reasons why it's difficult to assess disease in 
they were talking about physicians, but veterinarians would fall under this too, is that the skills we have of diagnosing and critical thinking and all of this create a situation or create a mind that has a huge potential for rationalization, minimization, justification of all of this. If you did my job, not saying you, but you know, just in general, if you had to go through what I went through, you would want to have a few drinks after work as well. And so all that thinking then just builds one right after another. So I actually didn't see it in myself. I think I knew in my heart, but I was blessed to have colleagues who could recognize what was going on with me. And they were courageous enough to step in and really help save my life and help me get a new life moving forward. And one of the things you shared is just, it's a disease of isolation and fear. And I think that's kind of important to unpack a little bit and just share, because you did mention there was a specific person in your life that was a colleague that said, hey, you need some help and had that hard conversation. Because again, hard conversations, whether it's in a relationship and it's in a marriage, if it's in the workplace, not always fun, but they're needed. So I think, how do you approach maybe a hard conversation like that? I guess that's getting more than one question. So I'll just stop right there before we dive in too far. Yeah, absolutely. And so that is one of the things in the medical professions is just that, is that why don't we have these difficult conversations? And so one of the reasons is fear. What if I'm wrong? If I try to get this person help and I'm wrong, is that going to sabotage their career? Which it will not. That is this similar to if someone was in diabetic ketoacidosis and you sought help for that person. We're trying to do the right thing for them. But also fear to people that may use alcohol or use substances and don't have a use disorder. Well, I don't want somebody doing the same thing to me. It's like the fear of that. And then it's also, again, it's mostly in professionals. It's fear of what I may do to that person's career. And it doesn't just go for use disorders. It also goes for sometimes even behaviors as far as competency and things like that. Like how do doctors continue to make mistakes, which is an incredibly small percentage, but how do they keep moving forward? It's that same questioning that we have, like, what if I'm wrong? Or maybe I'm, you know, almost gaslighting ourselves. So that's one thing. It's a little bit specific to medical professionals, but yes, that isolation and fear. And I think a lot of us feel that, but those who have an alcohol use disorder, you know, it's like, I can't share that with anybody. And then just feeling like an imposter, you know, the imposter syndrome, using that to cover it up. And then fear, I just want to touch on this is when I went through, so I got into recovery through a 12-step program and then learned a lot of positive psychology after that. But initially you go through this process that's called a fear inventory. And when I took an honest assessment of all the things that I was fearful of, I had a fear of success and I had a fear of failure. And as I looked at that kind of a little bit, being able to almost like be above myself and looking down at what I was writing and go, how could I have possibly just had any level of peace and serenity in my life? If I had a fear of success and a fear of failure, like what was I? And then I, then I had a whole mess, you know, of other things that I was fearful of. So two things, I saw that those things just butting heads where I was never going to find peace. And then I realized that most decisions that I made in my life were based out of fear. You know, what other people would think of me that if I didn't do this thing, then I wouldn't measure up and I needed to do it. And it's like, it was an interesting journey in self-awareness, that process. Might have been more than you. No, <laughs> this, for, no it's perfect. And you talked a little bit about earlier about tools. And one thing that you shared 
that you're passionate about now is kind of trying to provide those tools and have those conversations with vet students today to help them understand that earlier on. But can you talk a little bit about the tools, programs, maybe what you learned going through treatment that helped you that maybe someone that isn't there yet, if they hear that, maybe they could start to think through that or do it, do something that's being self-aware of like where I'm at today. Just have a check. Yeah. The two tools that were most impactful for me early on, one was gratitude. And so sometimes it seems some people I'll see online and some of the social media where they'll talk about toxic positivity and things like that. And gratitude is a now on this side of it, knowing that it is a well-researched intervention for inducing positive emotion, which is a healthy thing. But when I'm in gratitude, I lose a sense of lack. I lose a sense of the things that I don't have. And I become much more grateful for, of course, the things that I do have. And it just elevates the world around me. What it also does, it fundamentally changes the lens through which I see the world. My experiences is when I would sit down and be in a crappy mood or what have you and just, oh, this is going on, this is going on. I would go in my office, I would start writing a gratitude list. And my practice when I would do it would be that I would start writing things down that I was grateful for until I felt differently. And for me, it usually was about, once I got about 12 to 15 things on there, I felt differently. And I walked out of that office in a different state of mind than when I went in. I mean, this is a, again, it's a researched intervention, but I was amazed by how powerful that was, that nothing changed. The world was still as kooky as it was out there. All the things that I was worried about were still out there when I left my office, but I changed. And so that was one thing that I learned early on that was helpful. The other thing was challenging my thinking, you know, was if you didn't answer my text, we'll say, I knew the reason why you didn't answer my text. It was because you think ill of me. And it was probably the comment that I made two weeks ago. And now we're not going to probably talking about me behind my back and all this thing. And so my mind can't tell the difference whether that happened or it was fanciful and just made up. But I emotionally experienced the same things. And so just being able to challenge my thinking and saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Isaiah didn't say anything that would lead you to believe that that was the case. Try to see where that's coming from. And that's a tool that's used in 12-step recovery, but also used in positive psychology and psychology as well. And that really helped not only my well-being, but also kept me from experiencing a lot of negative stuff that I didn't have to. And certainly this goes with coworkers or clients, certainly you know, our significant others or in relationships, 100%. So work very well with my wife and I's relationship. So those two, I'll say those two things, there are a myriad of things that we could talk about with skills of resiliency. But personally, for me, those were the two of the real practical tools that helped my well-being. Yeah. And I think anyone listening loves practical because it's great to talk theory and this like just a gratitude journal or thinking about something that you just keep track of those things and then just challenging your thinking. Those are two things anyone listening. I mean, I'm taking notes, right? As we talk, I'm going to take that away from this conversation is I can do better with that because I think even just reframing, like I have to do this, but I get to do this. And I've thought about that too. Like, Hey, I'm really busy. I'm busy because I'm working with clients. I get to do that. Like I'm blessed enough to do that is very different than, oh my gosh, I have to work tonight because of this and that. Like, okay. Yes. Again, there's other challenges, issues maybe with that as well, but just trying to reframe it, I think is important. So I love that. We'll switch gears a little bit, but what is PERMA and why is that important? 
So PERMA is majorly the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, who is one of the co-founders of Modern Positive Psychology. And so PERMA stands for Positive Emotion, Engagement, Relationships, Meaning and Purpose, and Achievement. And so it's a theory of well-being that when we are successful in all of those aspects, we're considered to be what's called flourishing which means our level of well-being is high. Now, this does not mean that we don't experience ill feeling, that life doesn't come at us or anything like that. But what it means is, is that generally speaking, our level of subjective well-being or happiness is higher. Gratitude happens to fall under the positive emotion aspect of PERMA. So it is an intervention that we can use to increase positive emotion. It's not that they're negative emotions because they absolutely have purpose. But if I'm feeling less anger, if I'm feeling less sadness, and again, not sidestepping the landmines, if you will, like it's self-induced sadness that you didn't answer my text. You know, if I can do some of those things, my well-being will go up. And then engagement, when we're really in flow, when we're in the zone, if you're doing something that you love with family or by yourself that takes a high level of skill, but you've put a lot of work into that. Time just seems to stand still. You lift your head up and it's been three hours that you've been working on something and you just can't believe it. And relationships, probably the most important of all of those things are positive relationships and not co-rumination or complaining with friends or anything like that, but solid, meaningful relationships with other human beings and fostering those. And that makes a big deal, especially at work as well. I mean, certainly, of course, in our personal life, but it's very, very important in the work setting. And then meaning and purpose being part of something bigger than ourselves, really interconnectedness of of one another can be spiritual or secular. It just means we're appreciating that we're not it, is that there's more out there and we can be part of something bigger. And then achievement, of course, is just achieving goals, setting appropriate goals, using goal setting theory and smart goals and things like this to achieve things on a regular basis. Flip side is, is any of those, we can go over the (laughs) too much on one side. I think any professional can relate to that. Just being, I mean, no matter what we do, whatever it is that we do, that we can kind of put too much emphasis on achievement, but it does need to be there. So building on kind of PERMA, positive psychology, resilience training, how does that help in the area of retention and just fostering a team dynamic in veterinary medicine? Yeah. Let's say we've sat here and we've answered the problem or the consideration for wages. So whatever the reason is, that problem has been solved. So everyone is getting whatever the wage is. In a perfect world, everyone's getting the wage that they desire. What's the differentiating factor then? What are we doing? What are we bringing to the workplace that keeps people engaged, that gives people going into the PERMA theory? Like, are we inducing positive emotion there? Are we celebrating the wins? Are we giving our staff education that allows them to build their skill set to not only increase opportunities for flow or being in the zone, but also that level of achievement, you know, which again is another aspect of well-being. Are we fostering positive relationships at work? Do we have a concept, start throwing a lot of terms here, but do we have a foundation of what's called psychological safety? Meaning like if I make a mistake at work, do I feel like I'm going to be lit up or somebody's going to hit me with a flamethrower? Or are they going to say, we honor who you are and what you've done. Let's figure out how that happened because I don't think it's you. I have confidence in your competency 
let's figure out how we can do it better. Airline pilots and engineers are very good at that process too. And then of course, I mean, meaning and purpose. Why are we here? Why are we getting up in the morning and choosing to come to this practice to do this job when I could potentially do this elsewhere? There's a great line from a positive psychologist in Australia. You know, he says, basically, when we come to work, we should not leave work in a worse psychological state than we arrived in. Work should not do that to us. My very good friend, Josh Weisman, says I would take that a step further to say we should create an environment that that employee leaves work and is in a better psychological condition than they came in. And, oh, like that's, I know my practice, like we genuinely had that until COVID hit. We've shared openly about it or that work was a place we actually came to get recharged. And we made a real effort to foster those things in our culture. Perfect. When I think about, and I think it's interesting, the dynamic of what you just talked about with COVID, and maybe we can talk about a little bit of that. But one of the themes that seems to be coming up a lot more in conversation is leadership in veterinary medicine, and it's getting a lot of scrutiny, right? It just seems to be failing. And there are good examples, and it's not everywhere. Like there are really good examples of quality leadership. And for me, I'm always like, hey, look at the examples of who's doing it correct. And then what I always say is swipe, steal with integrity and pride. Just borrow those ideas and try to bring those into your environment if you are in a leadership role. But how do you think taking some of the things we just talked about, and if you are in a leadership role, how can you then implement or improve some of the dynamics of where the team is at today? Because it's not like you snap your finger and then, hey, we're going to talk about positive psychology. Everyone's going to be great. Like this is a place where we're all going to get along where it might not be there yet. No. And everyone getting along isn't necessarily the culture that you want. What you want to be able to have is have a safe environment to have those tough conversations or be able to have ideas flow and talk about those things. What's really interesting in veterinary medicine in a lot of places is that people that are very skilled at one task sometimes then get promoted into a leadership position. And because they're excellent at this one thing, they get put into a leadership spot and then we don't give them the tools to be a good leader. So education and what I would say is as a leader is work on oneself first. Like if we grow in here, then if we're putting the work in in ourselves, then we can pass that on. You know, we can't pour from an empty cup, but definitely like seeing what other people are doing and knowing that it can happen, but that it didn't happen overnight was that we also, let me say this, is we as human beings have this kind of external validation is looking at somebody else's practice for I don't know, 10 minutes and saying, oh man, I'd love to have that. And not seeing the whole story of how they got to that point, like all the ups and downs and all the challenges and all the things that built the foundation for that practice. So it's hard work. It has to be intentional work that this is what we want to do. It's not, let's do a course. We'll sit in on a webinar and that's it is that you ha- we really have to set that intention that we want to infuse well-being or positive culture, everything into almost every task that we do. And when we set that intention and see where we can get better in those ways, it can be magic. Absolutely. In your role as medical director, and I want to kind of come back to something you said earlier, you talked about fostering an environment that was fantastic. Obviously, COVID came and interrupted that. How do you get back to that in a world where we're at right now? And that might be the million dollar question, right? But 
thoughts on that? Because I've heard that a lot from others. It's like, hey, it's really hard to implement this stuff right now with where we're at. It is. It is. Most of us have been in survival mode or, you know, I would kind of go on from, I mean, I'm old enough to say about, but, you know, Hunt for Red October. We've I like that running, movie. We've been running. Yeah, yeah. We've been running at 110% on the reactor for a year. I mean, that is unsustainable for me too. Personally, what's been challenging is here I am, you know, like my journey is, is I dove head first into all this stuff for so long and I can see it in myself is that I'm trying to do more than I can. And what happens is, is that I'm a human being. And then when I'm stressed and the stress, you know, the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and all this other stuff, it's too challenging then for me to infuse in the moment the positive emotion and all that. And so what we have to do is not get to being on fire because when we're in burnout or when demand overwhelms our capacity, those things have to be genuinely have to be addressed first or that none of this can really be there. Our clinic has been kind of a microcosm of that whole thing. So we've had to throttle the schedule back. We've adjusted certain things and it's challenging too because we didn't used to do that. And to having to say no to clients is also something that starts affecting our value system and our meaning and purpose. And we have to go back and kind of reframe that and say, this is for now, this is what we do need to do. And it's just harder right now. I mean, and that's the truth of it. But in doing some of the things that we've done to bring a little bit of that demand down, it has enabled us to open up some of the conversations. I'll say this is having the clients come back in the building was one of the best things. We went around and had our first team meeting because we hadn't had an in-person team meeting for a long time with COVID because we were just so crazy and we didn't want to have everybody in one spot. And when I went around and said, I want everybody to just think about when this practice was at its best, like when we were really just engaged and what made that that way? And probably 80 to 90% of our staff said it was engaging with the clients, relationships with the clients and relationships with one another. That was it. other people matter. That's one of the hallmarks of positive psychology is when we broke it down to that. And I'll tell you, since we've had clients come back in the building, it's still stressful, but we're able to have that communication and there's less miscommunication and there's more bonding and it's been better. Just thinking through, because I've heard some people say that they've liked the ability of not having the owner that's attached to that pet sometimes in practice, but hearing what you said makes complete sense. I mean, if you think about humans in general, relationships matter and yeah, you're going to have some people that drive you nuts and they still come and that's just part of it. Like you're not going to love and have a great relationship with everybody, but there's going to be another time where someone comes in and there's a conversation or something happens and it lifts you, right? And that can't happen when everything's curbside and no one's in the building. So I like that. And to take time to honor those things, I think that's one of the things we don't do is savor the wins, you know, is that this process of savoring, like really sitting with and sharing. We have our staff will share those things when say, like if a client says, oh, I just thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing X. And sometimes we'll just, oh, well, it's my job. And yeah, I mean, it is. But to know that we've affected someone in that way and taking the time to let that sit in our heart, that's the stuff too, that do we get clients who are angry and not fun? I mean, yeah. But 
how many of those clients are really there? That's what we talk about is that the clients that are thanking us far outweigh the clients that are angry and upset and whatever. And it's just a simple note. Like if we're only focusing on the negative clients, we're not doing the good that happened justice. And I'm not saying to discount or accept toxic behavior, but I'm saying we also need to honor the things that we've brought. And if we overlook that, it's very challenging to find sustainability in this profession. You know, if we start painting with that brush that all clients are this and all clients are that, it's very hard to find meaning and purpose in, in what we do. Yeah. You shared some really good reasons. And I think one particular that I made a note of when we chatted before of why you love veterinary medicine and how impactful that's been to you, both personally, obviously, and then professionally. But I just want to give you a little time to share your thoughts on kind of why you feel so strongly about veterinary medicine. So, I mean, I love science. Like I'm a nerd, like a lot of us. I mean, I just love that stuff. You know, most of us, whatever profession we're in, like we got into it because we genuinely like whatever it is, like the nuts and bolts of doing that. But veterinary medicine affords us an opportunity to do a number of things to bring purpose. I'll speak for myself is that, you know, is relationship building, teaching, coaching, fostering growth in others. And then certainly, yes, the medicine and surgery part of it, which is awesome when it goes right. But those opportunities, we are, I'll say as a general practice veterinarian, I have the opportunity to do something that no other profession can do from the time that a patient is almost born till the time that a patient leaves this earth. I may be the only one that delivers care to that special being, to that pet, to that owner and building that relationship. And over, say, a period of 10 years, all the things that happen and that clients open up to us and share. And I honor that. I mean, you know, I don't know that people necessarily go into their bank and share all the things that are going on with them, but oftentimes they'll do that with us. And they do that. And what I really honor is they do that a lot with our support staff and our support staff, when they have the emotional energy to sit with that honors that they can share space with that client. And those are things that really have nothing to do with our clinical acumen. It has nothing to do with my ability to read radiographs or diagnose certain diseases. It just affords me a way to be a human of this earth and just be there for another human being. So some of the most memorable things that have happened to me in the profession really genuinely didn't have anything specifically to do with a case or how I handled it. It was how I was able to be there for another human being. So I typically ask a question, seeing if you want to ask me something, but I want to ask another closing question instead of what I typically do. Not that I don't want you to ask me a question, but I have something else I want to ask. I know we got a little time pressure as well, but what advice would you give to a young veterinarian that is maybe in school, getting ready to graduate or a recent grad from what you've learned to have a sustainable and let's call it a thriving career? Other than the fiscal things, which is not really my forte. I mean, that is important for wellness is financial literacy and, and that sort of thing. That is important. But it would be to really dive into skills of resiliency and some of the... I, wish they weren't called soft skills, but some of those skills that allow us to sidestep those landmines and that thinking process and be able to genuinely honor and enjoy what this profession has to offer. I see a lot of the stuff on social media, and I will tell you that the events are not different in our hospital, but I have tools that I didn't have when I graduated 
that allow me to see the profession differently. And I'm forever grateful for that. And so that's why there's a number of us, certainly, I mean, a lot of us in the profession that really want to hand those tools off to students. So that is learning the soft skills and skills of resiliency. Totally. Thank you for that. And then in closing, so if I'm listening to this and I want to connect, how would you suggest that someone either reaches out? Where are you at on different social medias or websites? Anything that you want to encourage people to check you out or how to connect? Yeah, absolutely. I do have a website. It's flourishingphoenix.com is my consulting website. You can certainly get in touch with me through the Florida Veterinary Medical Association, the uh, Professional Wellness and Wellbeing Committee. I'm grateful we do a lot of stuff in Florida. I'm grateful for that whole organization. And then certainly email me at drphil at flourishingphoenix.com. And I'm on LinkedIn and yeah. I always try to encourage veterinarians. I think there's a lot of good stuff on LinkedIn. I would encourage you to connect on LinkedIn as well. That's why you and I are talking. The curiosity and the people that we get exposed to or exposure to, I mean, it's just fantastic. Like I've gotten to have some of the richest conversations with folks over the past, say, six months to a year because of because I finally was like, oh, I probably should be on LinkedIn. And it's just been very rewarding, very rewarding. Well, I want to say thank you so much for spending the time and sharing not only your story, but also kind of what you've learned from that, how to encourage the rest of the profession in there. I think we both agree there's a lot of really positive things that are happening in veterinary medicine. And sometimes it's hard to maybe focus on that when there is negativity that's always going to be there. But it's like, how can we reframe the way that this is into the conversations for what the future can hold and how it can be a really bright future for a lot of veterinarians? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.